Welcome to Sake Deep Dive, the sake podcast for the beyond beginner. I am your host, Jim Ryan, uh, sitting in Yamaguchi Prefecture at the western end of the main island of Honshu, joined as always by my friend and host, Andrew Russell. Andrew, how you doing tonight? Good evening, Jim. I'm very good, just enjoying this nice, cool autumn weather that's finally turned up. Finally autumn. Yes, the last gasp of summer has behind us we've finally got these lovely cool autumn breezes this the brewing season is getting ready to get into sort of full start i know some of the places have started sakai shuzo has has two tanks in process but they haven't really gotten into full gear yet and i know you're going to be starting soon yeah by by the time this episode airs yeah i'll I'll have been underway for probably about a month um, the the shoe kanki will be turned up to eleven, I'm sure, by that point, and uh, it's going to be, you know, atskan for the foreseeable future. That's right, drinking that, drinking that lovely atskan. Right. So today we're going to get pretty technical. This is a uh, this is going to be one of our more technical episodes, and that means that probably I'm going to be taking a bit of a backseat because we're getting into the nitty gritty of sake brewing itself, and uh, I think we're going to start with probably what I think a lot of people would call the the heart of not just sake, but I think Japanese food culture in general. What are we talking about today, Andy? Well, Japan has many national symbols, as you know. They mm. have the, the, the cherry blossom, obviously, the chrysanthemum uh, being the, the national flower. They have the national fish as the koi. But we're going down a slightly less glamorous path, I suppose. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Japan's national fungus. The national fungus of Japan. Since 2006, I believe. Yeah. And that is, of course, koji. Koji. Or, to be more specific or more accurate, I suppose, koji kin. Right. Or koji to give kin. it its scientific name, Aspergillus orizai. Yeah, and this is this is actually because it, because it, it's funny when they talk about koji as one thing, but koji is not just one thing. There's there's actually quite a few aspergillus aspergilli in that group, right? Uh, we are of course going to be talking about aspergillus orizai, the, uh, the 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 sake koji king, but there's also uh, aspergillus soyai, which is the uh, miso and soy sauce. Koji King, right? And then there's the Koji for Awamori and Shochu. There, see, uh, that's what is that? Aspergillus Awamori is, of course, for Awamori, and Aspergillus luciensis, which is for Shochu, um, respectively, black and white Koji. But yeah. our Koji is, of course, yellow Koji. Koji. Kikoji. Kikoji. I was going to say you're forgetting one more. You're forgetting the sort of sinister-sounding Flavus. I think is the is the pronunciation of it, which is the one of the theories to the you know the origin of this is that it came from this, which does produce toxins. Yeah. But uh, Orizai, um, thankfully for everyone and for Japanese cuisine and drinking culture in general, does not produce toxins. So it's a domesticated one, and it's a nice clean mold. Yes. And it's also a very old mold. We do like our history here at Sake Deep Dive. And uh, man, Koji has some history. 
we're not nobody knows exactly when koji came to japan because it came before written language so the first mention of moyashi which causes a lot of confusion in japan because that is also the the name for the, the sort of bean sprouts that you get in your ramen um but the, the first mention of moyashi was in the heian period uh, in the engishiki which I think was published in nine, uh, 924, if I've got that correct. So that was the first written mention of uh, what, what they called at the time moyashi, which is still technically true, but that's the, the term for kojikin. Yeah, I think there's archaeological evidence that, that really says that there has been some form of koji used in Japan going all the way back for as long as there has been wet rice cultivation which is basically about 2000 years. So it's a it, it's it's well rooted in the soil and culture of Japan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's safe to say it's it's integral for Japanese cuisine. Right. You know, miso, soy sauce, sake, a whole host of other things that you don't think about like amazake. You know, these these are all um, you know, koji is central. And I should point out, we're actually being very Nihonshu centric by saying koji, like you like you mentioned earlier. The correct term really is komikoji or rice koji. That is yeah. what they use for, for sake. But I think for just the ease tonight, we will, we will, you know, ignore that mistake and just say koji. Right. But yeah, point, it's worth pointing out there you know, there are numerous types of oh, yeah. koji made from made from different grains and cereals and salt. And salt. <laughs> yeah, what, what have you? Yes. So it, it is ubiquitous uh, in things that you put in your mouth in Japan. And uh, when we we are, of course, going to be talking about about sake and um, in terms of sake, like, you know, there's anybody who's learned anything about sake, like you know, first koji then zukuri or whatever but it's so fundamentally vital that not understanding proper koji really does kind of stand in the way of of ever successfully understanding sake you know and I, i've talked to like people who are brewing outside of japan who really just don't know like they don't have that kind of fundamental grasp of sake and and it's a really difficult thing uh, so the importance of koji cannot be overstated. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's so important. I, I know that, you know, not just on this podcast, but in my blog and you know, when I'm speaking to people that I do have a habit of really, you know, complaining about, you know, modern concepts like terroir and things like that. And I do apologize. That is, you know, I do feel strongly about it. And one of the reasons is... You know, I'm not saying I have a, a full understanding of koji, but having having worked with it and having the, the luxury of having worked for some very experienced master brewers that understand the huge influence that koji has on on sake. Once that door opens, that is when you realize that it really it's it's koji that is the big thing with sake it really has a hand in absolutely every aspect of you know the the outcome of a particular brew when you talk about whether a sake is sweet or dry 
if it's a richer light, you know, the aromas, umami, everything. Koji has a massive influence on all of that. So like you said, it, it, it can't be overstated enough how important Koji is to it. I know it's a kind of cliched thing that you, you hear that very early on, that there's an old saying, Ichikoji Nimoto Sanskri, which I guess you would translate as the most important thing is Koji followed by Moto, followed by, you know, I guess translated a lot as Moromi, but it could just really refer to everything else outside of that. But when you actually get in a brewery and you, you, you start doing some of the steps, you realise that the vast majority of them are, are done for the purpose of making this Koji to the optimum way. You know, right from the beginning, when you think of washing the rice, to then steaming it, to the effort that then goes into, you know, the actual cultivation of this, you know, the raising of this, this koji. And then, like I said before, when you realize why they're doing that and why they're putting so much effort into it, then yeah, it really does open up your your perspective on on sake and what what really is making it tick. Right. So let's get into it, Andy. Where do you want to start? Where would you like to start? Would you like to start with a little bit of trivia or would you like to just... Let's start with some trivia. Let's start with the trivia. I'm a trivia master. Let's go for that. Right. Well, I'll give you a little... I'll give you one question and see if you can get it. I will be right. very impressed. I'm being a bit smug because I had to research, <laughs> I had to research this. So I don't want people at home thinking, that, you know, that, that I knew this all along. I, I'll admit, I only found this out about a week ago. But do you know why it's called Aspergillus? Ah. <laughs> I do. So... I do. Wow. Right. Because I have asked you. no, because because I, I've been researching it too. Because it was um, first identified by an Italian uh, researcher named uh, Aspergillo, and he it was nineteenth century, at eighteen hundreds that he uh, that he first sort of named this giant. It's a really huge class of mold, in fact. Right? Am I right? Uh, well, that sounds more. I'm going to wear my. Don't don't edit this out. So <laughs> I I have a different source. Oh really? And it and it does make sense when you when you see the composition of uh, the the koji spot or aspergillus mm -hmm. the you know in that form. If you look at it under a microscope. It has a very strange shape. I don't know how you mm -hmm. describe it. It looks like kind of like a baton that a cheerleader would be holding or, you know, swinging. It's, it's kind of long and then it's bulbous at the end. Now, that also looks, well, it, so in the book that I'm reading, it's from, uh, it's called Kyo no uh, Sakegaku. It's from one of my favorite, favorite authors. In that book, he, he talks about that it looks like a broom. But but in actual fact, where it comes from is an aspergillum. Now, an aspergillum, I had no idea what this is, but uh, it is what a, it is yeah, what a yeah, priest yeah. would um, would use. The, the, I guess they fill yeah. it with holy water and then they, they bless things with it. And it looks exactly the same. So and that is called an aspergillum. So that, according to my source, is why it's called aspergillus. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I got that. I got that sort of confused. But it was an Italian guy, right? It was it was an Italian researcher who who identified it. 
could be it does not say in my book definitely i i suppose we we can assume that he was familiar with the catholic liturgy <laughs> if he if he knew what an aspergillus aspergillum looked like but there you go okay so yeah, if anyone's interested the book is uh yoshida uh, hajime i think the, the name of the author i kind of very, i kind of feel book. like that would be on wikipedia <laughs> in english right yeah well i was kind of i was not expecting that but that is that, that is according to my source well if, if anyone knows who you know which of us is wrong please get in touch i'm pretty sure andy's right i'm pretty sure i'm wrong because i was just because because i it was something i read in passing and then it, it kind of stuck to me but now that yeah I, i'm pretty sure that i was wrong well, all right there's there's our absolutely pointless bit of uh, <laughs> trivia over with and, oh it's over there's no more trivia oh okay all yeah, right I'm afraid, afraid one, one's enough you know yeah. considering it doesn't sound very definitive either let's just leave it there <laughs> all right so let's let's get on let's 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 move on to then aspergillus orize in action yeah well i, I guess the, the logical thing here would be to kind of talk about a bit about production i suppose what's what's the journey that koji goes on so there are a number of ways that you can make koji and and you're going to find depending on the brewery you know they're all going to have slight variations to to the same objective the the three that you hear of most of all when we're talking about um you know tezukuri you know, handmade koji. The three levels are differentiated by the by the size of the of where they, they actually cultivate the, the koji. So you have toko, toko koji, you have futa koji, and then you have hako koji. And sorry, I realize that's not in the right order. It should be toko, hako, and then uh, futa. And the, the toko refers to, it's another way of saying table in Japanese. So if you've ever, I'm sure some of our listeners have been in Kojimura, if they've ever done a, a brewery visit in Japan, they'll have seen one of these things. It's the big table right in the middle of the room where they spread out the koji. And one of the methods that they do is what, what, they're, what they're trying to do is obviously get that room at the optimum temperature for, for the style that they're trying to make. We'll go into that a bit more detail later on. But what they'll do is they'll actually they'll make the koji on that table once they've brought it in from the rice steamer which obviously comes in at the right temperature and they have to obviously you know inoculate the the rice with what they call tani koji these are these are the spores of the koji effectively pre-made koji kin that gets you know nine times out of ten gets bought in and they'll actually just do the tani kire and then they'll cultivate it there on this big table now the good point about that obviously is it's nice and simple relatively speaking to the other methods you you don't have to move it around you can can easily get to it you can have a team of brewers that can just get their hands on it and they can they can mix it and you know lower the temperatures like they do the downside to that is they can't be very specific with the temperatures you're going to get a big variation between one end of the table and the other because Muro are, you know, they're, they're closed off, but they aren't completely sealed. There's no way that they can do that. So, you know, the, the temperature is so important, but they are going to get slight differences. So it's considered kind of the easiest way, but 
it's going to produce the least quality out of the three. The next stage is what they call Hakokoji, and that is a kind of, you know, meter by a meter and a half, kind of large wooden shallow box. Hako means box in Japanese. And obviously, if you think of the toko coming down into this, this mid-sized box, it's much easier for them to, to, to fine-tune the temperature when they start getting to the later stages. Then that goes to the extreme with that this was the original method of brewers that I guess would have been more than likely thought up in the Edo period, probably the very early Edo period, called futakoji. And these are very small and they only hold about three kilograms of rice each. It is unbelievably labour intensive. It keeps brewers up all night because they have to keep coming in and the, the benefit to it is they can really fine-tune that, that temperature but obviously the downside to it is it takes an, a lot of effort to move and to, to, to shuffle these individual boxes. Now, in my brewing career, I'm about to join my third brewery. I've still never tried Futakoji. It, both the Toji that I've worked with have been happy with the middle ground, which is Hakokoji. But I have spoke to some people that have done it and they say that it really is... It's one of the most labour-intensive things that brewers do. I will get the chance to do it at my new brewery, and I'm really looking forward to it, but I'm also quite apprehensive about it because I've, it's it's legendary how difficult it is. So, just so yeah. to, uh, Let me... Can I can I ask a couple of questions here? So um, we're talking about batch sizes, right? So you, you, you do a huge batch on the toko, and then you do smaller batches in hako and then futa. Is there kind of a standard, like... Like how many kilograms of rice would you do in a hako versus a futa versus maybe a toko? Yeah, it's it's all it's all planned out, and as I said, you're going to get variations. These when we're talking about these hako and futa and toko, there there isn't a kind of standardized size. The brewers often make them themselves. They're made. They were made years ago, particularly the futa koji. They do tend to be roughly the same size, but like I said, the smallest you're going to get from the breweries that I've worked in, bear in mind, if we're, the both the breweries I've worked in typically make what is called iton jikomi, which is a, which is a one ton of rice. So when we're making it, that, that there gives you an idea of the, the size of the brewery. That's very small batch. You do get smaller batch, but that is typically a small batch. If you go to bigger, some bigger breweries are doing, you know, three times that, sometimes maybe eight times that in one batch. That kind of scale, you're not really very often going to get handmade koji. There are exceptions. Most of the time that is going to be made in, you know, in a very large machine that's specific for, for koji making. But yeah, anywhere from three kilograms, which is, I don't know if anyone's ever laid that amount of rice. It's its a very small amount. It's really quite small, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it heaps, you know, maybe four or five inches across in diameter. Then you've got the other end on a toko, you're probably going to have, I would say, about 110 kilograms to maybe down to about 80 kilograms. So yeah, that that's on the on the larger scale. The hako tend to be about ten to fifteen. Okay. So 
yeah you, you can get an idea of um of the size when you're talking handmade koji they're all pretty small amounts mm-hmm. you know speaking of handmade koji i <laughs> I'm I'm reminded of a translation job I did for a sake brewer in which they they talked about how the the toko um another meaning of toko is bed uh sort of the the not not necessarily yeah. in the in the bed that we typically think of but the the sleeping floor and so the idea of you know you're you're in this hot room and you're you're <clears throat> using your hands to bring new life to rice uh, on this bed it has a distinctly erotic feeling. And I had to explain to this uh, sake brewery that, that perhaps that wasn't the best um, metaphor to use when you're advertising your sake. But at the same time, it's a compelling image, isn't it? Those... Yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a more obvious link they could have made. I won't say who, but I do know of some breweries that there, there are beds, literal beds, inside the muro, where brewers will, whoever's got the, you know, the night shift, usually the person in charge of, of koji, will sleep in the muro. That is not that strange. I mean, that might sound strange, but, you know, certainly the number of breweries that are that strict are dwindling nowadays. But I still know breweries where, because particularly if you're doing futakoji. So I guess this could lead into, you know, slightly better explanation of, you know, what, what I just said. The reason that they have to constantly make adjustments to the koji is it's for, for key koji anyway, for yellow koji, it's a controlled ascent of temperature is effectively what, what you're doing. There's a lot of analogies made in sake brewing about raising children and what have you, that you, you treat it like a child. What they're meaning is the koji side of that. That's what they're talking about. You, ha- you have to give it a good start in life and then you have to make sure that it goes on the right path and then you have to send it off into the world. That's the kind of analogies that I'm sure you would have heard from, from brewers. And what they're meaning is they're talking about you know, raising koji, mm-hmm. particularly the smaller scale that you go. So when you go to these very small futa koji, like I said, that the benefit is that you can be very specific with how you manipulate the temperature and how you how you keep it in check. But you have to do that by hand. So you're talking about every couple of hours that you have to make these adjustments when you're doing futa futa koji. With hako koji, it's slightly less, but you do still have to make adjustments. And they have they have names for them. So the first one is mori. Mori gets typically gets done about 24, uh, 24 hours after you've brought the rice into the muro and after you've inoculated it with uh, with kojikins. That's the very obviously very uh, famous picture that you're you're going to see of mm-hmm. brewers very carefully and very serious faced. When they're sprinkling these mold, uh, this mold over the rice, about 24 hours after that happens, the spores have started to develop. So what they have to do is, you know, make sure that the the temperature is evened out. So they they typically bundle it all up, and this it looks like a big onigiri. I suppose it is a big rice ball. Literally, it's a big rice ball. But they have to then level that out because if you've got uneven bits, the koji is going to start to get aggressive in some places, and it's going to be 
a bit too docile in other, so they have to to level it out. That's called mori, and the it, it that would typically happen about thirty six degrees. Uh, sorry, about thirty degrees. Apologies. Then you've got a uh, naka. That's that's the kind of midway point. Now, what's happened between then is the koji has started to get a lot more um, aggressive. I suppose is the is the best way to say it. The spores are now really active, and what they're doing is they're burrowing for moisture. So they're looking for the first moisture source, which is why well we'll come back to this later. But why soaking the rice and steaming the rice is is crucial to the whole thing before you even get started. After that, you've done that adjustment and the, the NACA stage, what you're doing is you're trying to stop it just running off and getting too high in temperature. So you, again, you level out all the temperatures. And then finally you get Shimai Shigoto. That's, that happens in the evening and that's the one that normally keeps brewers you know, from getting to from getting in the bath early and getting to bed early. It typically happens in a brewery about eight, nine o'clock at night. And it does require quite a lot of work again depending on the size of your uh, of your batch but the the shimai once the shimai shigoto is finished that is when the enzymes start developing so it's a very crucial point so although it's lasting in, at night and what have you you can't rush that off but from that point you do have to check it now as i said that happens usually late into the evening if if you need to keep checking the temperature to make sure that room is okay and that you're, you're trying to keep a fixed temperature until the next morning, you do have to check it quite often. The smaller the vessel, the more often you have to do that because there's more potential for you know different boxes to be a different temperature. And typically it's about one, one to every two hours that it has to be checked. And that means that some of the brewers, rather than having to get out of their bed and you know, come downstairs, maybe they're a little, you know, a little walk or maybe even a different building from the from the mural. Some of them will literally just sleep inside the, the mural. So, yeah. so yeah, the, the bed analogy, you could have probably, some of them quite literally do have a bed. <laughs> so I guess maybe this, this is going to be a question that some of our listeners have in it because I know that I am having it. When you make that choice, now, obviously, you know, choosing to make uh, futakoji is very labor intensive, and it's something that you would do for a, a much more, I guess you would say, premium, a much more higher priced sake, right? Something that you really want uh, to to do special uh, production methods with. But what is the result of that? Obviously, more precise temperature control is going to have an effect on how the koji grows. But can you be maybe a little bit more specific about what is it that that kind of precise control is doing? Well, there's there's kind of two aspects to it. And the, the, the first one, I'll get this out of the way because then we can kind of geek out a bit on the second one. Mm -hmm. And that's really when we're going to start to get technical. So the, the first one is really where you, the, I guess the brewers earn their money. This is the real intuitive part of it. Every year, rice is different. We, we've talked about this before. We talked about it several times in the, the, terroir, the terroir episode, or the two terroir episodes that we've just done. But typically, every year, the rice is different. It depends on uh, myriad factors that, you know, typically being weather, more specifically being, how, you know, how much rain has, has fallen will depend on how hard or how soft the rice is. And that has a very big 
impact on making koji. If you're if you're thinking about on the largest scale, if you're thinking about it in a, in a machine, or you know maybe even moving down to the to the toko, the bed size. Say you're making it for the first time, the second time, or even the third time, you've still not really worked out what this year's rice is like. And obviously brewers use different rice varieties as well. So that then, you know, that then becomes a bigger problem as you start using different rice varieties throughout the season. But if you've got it all on a, you know, on a big, you know, laid out on this big table, or even worse, it's in a it's in a machine, you don't know how that koji is gonna you know, going to develop. And the larger scale it is, the, the less, the less scope, I suppose, you have to make these, you know, these adjustments. But with Futa Koji specifically, and this is what I've heard from, uh, from Toji that have, that, that work with this, uh, that, that method, is you can actually very, very quickly make adjustments and notice what's going on. You know, bear in mind, everything is in these these tiny little small boxes and you can get right into it to see a lot more detail of how the koji is developing, whether it's doing what it should be doing. So that's the benefit of, you know, the smaller vessels as opposed to, you know, machine-made koji or even uh, toko koji. I'm not saying they, are, they should be in the same, the same category. But yeah, that's one of the reasons. The other reason is... I guess, you know, if you're new to sake and you pick up, you know, a textbook or something like that, it kind of sounds really simple that there's like one type of koji that, you know, you often hear like in brewers, then steam it and then they make koji and then they, you know, then they start mashing. That really is just, you know, an unbelievable oversimplification of, I guess, the work that goes into koji. There are numerous different I guess you call them specifications of, of koji, you know, and how they how they raise that temperature. That what I said before about that controlled ascent of the temperature, how they space that out, you know, at what temperature do they then level it off to, to what type of enzymes they're trying to do. There's a whole, you know, range of, of koji. And it's easier to do that. If you've got more control over the koji and obviously you have more control over the koji if you're using smaller vessels so and, and to, to kind of round that all off the, the brewer is able to exert much more influence sake brewing is is about harnessing nature you know this this is a living thing but the brewer has has much more leeway on what that is doing when it's in a smaller vessel then it's in then it's laid out on uh, on a you know a big table and very little influence when it's inside a large scale industrial koji making machine okay so then you said there's a lot of varieties and i i like i just off the top of my head i know about sohaze and tsukihaze what what else what else are we looking at here right so haze just for those who don't know so haze basically means that the the koji has kind of grown evenly across the surface of the rice grains and tsukihaze means it's 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 sort of scattered and in in points where like i guess the what do you call it the phyllae the the filaments of the the mold have have grown deeper and less wide over the surface of the rice 
Yeah, we should probably explain that, you know, what, what Hazy is. Hazy yeah. is, if, if you look at Koji and you see that, I mean, it looks beautiful. It, that, that kind of lovely speckled, you know, like it is, it's, it's mold. When you see that growing on the rice, that is what they call in Japanese Hazy. And yeah, as, as Jim was just saying, Sohaze and Skihaze are, are kind of the two, you know, main varieties. I, I've always said if, if sake was easier to understand and this, this wasn't so technical, you, you could almost recommend sake to people rather than talking about, you know, are probably more beneficial than talking about rice variety or, or even yeast. You could actually make recommendations whether the sake was made with sohaze or whether it was made with sukitsukihaze. It would actually probably get you to your objective quicker that way. The, 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 the two types of, uh, the two main types of koji, they, they do produce such different sake. It's, you know, they, they are almost two categories. And I do ask that question. Almost one of the first questions I ask when I visit a brewery is, is do you you know how do you make your koji? Is it so hazy or ski hazy? Often they'll say both. It'll depend on what they're making. But yeah, so hazy, like you said, it's that the enzymes are going to be a lot more uh, aggressive, I suppose, as the you know a lot more vigorous with a with a so hazy batch of koji than they are with ski hazy. But it's just much more complicated than that. The different enzymes, bear in mind, there's several different types of enzymes and they all, we, we will get into this in a bit, a bit later. So, you know, we don't leave that, that page blank. The, 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 the so has a, typically it, they use that for moto because the objective often, it's very difficult to make generalizations, but often the objective with a moto obviously is to, you know, to make his, you know, as healthy a colony of yeast as possible. And, and for that, you need a particular type of koji. With tsukihaze, it tends to be more suited for the, the actual mashing part, the three-stage mashing. But within that, you'll often get, you know, the, just a reminder, the three-stage mashing is soe, naka, and tome. They're the three increasing sizes of, of rice water and koji that you add to the mash. But typically, they will start to re reduce the, the the enzyme strength as they're going up that that ladder. So the, typically the moto will have, I guess, the strongest enzymes, followed by the the soy and then the naka and then the tome, and it kind of leans towards more tsukihaze towards the other end. So yeah, I, that that I hope that makes sense. Does it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then I guess then if you were, if in general, say you're, you were trying to make a sake that was lighter and cleaner and more delicate, then you would want fewer enzymes. You would want to, to sort of lean towards the tsukihaze end of things than sohaze. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And you could actually say, you sometimes hear the term ginjo koji and ginjo koji is almost synonymous with tsukihaze. So typically, if you're making an orthodox style of ginjo, then you would you would typically make skihaze. A lot of the the textbooks just flat out say, you know, ginjo koji is skihaze, and sohaze is you know when you're trying to do you know you're, you're trying to get a different objective. 
one of the this is where you need to and this is i guess where it starts getting technical but you always see the simplified thing of you know the koji produces enzymes but it does produce enzymes that that's what you're doing when you make koji you're making koji is making enzymes but there's lots of different enzymes i think there's around 30 to 100 different types of enzymes but the the three main ones i guess that we're you know we're going to talk about here are glucoamylase alpha amylase and then proteas and i'm sorry i'm saying that wrong because i I learned these all in uh, in japanese but yeah these three types of enzymes are are really the 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 the, the linchpin of it They, they all have a different role and depending on the balance of these enzymes will hugely affect i mean massive impact on on the sake what i said at the beginning about whether it's sweet or dry whether it's rich or light the aroma you know how well it marries with the yeast everything comes down to to the enzymes that are produced and other things that are produced by the koji but specifically or most importantly from the 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 enzymes that are produced so for for example um to start at the start at the end Pro, proteas is the enzyme that breaks down protein into amino acids so when we talk about umami people you know often say oh the rice produces the umami and what have you no it's the koji that breaks down proteins in the rice through that specific enzyme mm-hmm. and that's what that's what creates umami so if you've got a higher amount of proteas then you're going to have higher amount of umami generally speaking you then have glucoamylase and alpha amylase which they're kind of codependent but obviously you're going to get a different balance depending on how you make the koji you know the the glucoamylase is is really what gives it its sugar content that's its sweetness level and then the, the alpha amylase produces a different kind but it actually starts to convert that so so those two work in kind of symphony together. How you control the, the final stages um, and even the earlier stages as well, what we talked about before in the, the, the Koji Muro, that final stage when the, the enzymes are, are actually being produced, this is after Shimai Shigoto, what temperature you keep the Koji at until the next morning really has a big influence on the balance of these three enzymes. So when you talk about, you know, master brewers or the influence of koji, and you often hear that is when the toji, typically the toji, sometimes it's it's other people in the brewery, but that is when they really get their chance to put their signature on the sake. And they, they have more influence at that point through the koji than in any other stage what they do with that koji that balance of enzymes and the other you know the other products of of the koji that affects the yeast so people talk about aroma coming from yeast people talk about flavors coming from yeast it pales in comparison to the effect that the koji has that then provides that for for the yeasts then you talk about umami again that's down to the koji you know that's affecting whether it's rich or light and then, of course, the acidity as well. All of these things all link back to it, to, to the koji. So if, if you kind of think about it, like 
I guess this is probably a silly analogy, but if you think about it like a like a concert um, or, or an orchestra, you know, you have all these these instruments. The, the koji is the conductor of that. How that is is you know determined will determine how well everything else falls into place in the tank, and that is why koji is the most important part of sake brewing. You know, when I started brewing, I would hear that constantly. But you'd also hear people saying it's all about the water and other people would say it's all about the yeast and then other people would say it's all about the rice. The truth is, yeah, these are very important things, but they're just the the ingredients. The koji is the part that influences all of them. So without getting that part right, none of these other elements are going to do their job properly. So one thing that that maybe we didn't touch on that I I do want to make sure that like I get a chance to ask this because it is fascinating to me. Um, so we're talking about koji as in rice koji, as in, you know, rice that has been inoculated with the koji keen and the, how, how those varieties are influenced by, you know, the the behavior, the, the, the way that the, the brewers control temperature and things. Is there variation in the koji keen itself? Like, you know, we, we'd say that, the, you know, kikoji, the yellow koji is sake koji. And the way that breweries tend to get that almost almost universally is, is they buy like these little green plastic bags with tane koji. Are there different kinds of that? Like of the of the stuff in the bag of the the the, the spores that people are sprinkling? How, like, does that make a difference in, say, for example, okay, this, this koji keen creates more protease. So this koji keen, uh, in conjunction with the temperature control and things like that, is going to result in, the, you know, a, a, a sake that's heavier on the umami. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's obviously a very good question as well. You know, tani koji is not tani koji. You know, they're, they're commercially made, but that doesn't mean they're all the same. It would be the same as you know buying another product from you know five different companies. You're going to get slight variations. Both the breweries I've worked have so the both the breweries I've worked have actually changed the Tani Koji while I've been there. Uh, one of the breweries that I worked, I won't say which one was which, but one of the breweries I worked used different types of Tani Koji for different sake. And obviously, you know, the sake that's produced, they're doing that because it produces a, a different quality of koji. Like we've said before, it's going to have a huge impact, you know, how that koji turns out. It's going to affect the aroma and the, the, the taste of the, the sake. So, so yeah, they do make a big difference. I, I should probably mention as well, when we were talking before about sohaze and tsukihaze, the amount of tani koji, this is one of the ways they achieve that is by reducing the amount as well. So not just the brands of Tani Koji, but the amount that they're using as well. For Tsukihaze, you would typically lower the amount because bear in mind, you're, you're only trying to speckle the, the Koji with that, you know, that Haze, that white glistening uh, fungus. Whereas with Sohaze, you want a higher amount because you're, you're looking for, you know, more pronounced mold in the final Koji. But yeah, absolutely. There, there are some that produce more protease. There are some that are better for the, the, the collective term for, you know, amylase, the, the, the alpha and the glucoamylase. And I've heard people saying that 
some of them were no good and they had to change you know they had bad batches of koji being made and you know all these kind of things whether that's true or not it could just be you know they they, yeah. they made other errors you'll never know but yeah absolutely that is a big decision for a master brewer or someone in charge of koji production what they call seikiku is do, do they have one that's suitable for what they're trying to do one that they're comfortable with more importantly um, and one even more important than that that they can rely on thank you very much i guess we've established then that that koji is uh, absolutely fundamental in sort of tying all of the elements of uh of a fermentation together right so it's it it it's, it, it pulls the the flavors from the rice and it, it influences the way that the yeast behaves and everything so then i guess one thing that is pretty important is making sure that that the rice and the koji play together well so like what what do we do like obviously i think people are going to be familiar with terms like um gaiko nainan and whatever but but let can you talk a little bit more specifically about how that that rice preparation influences koji growth yeah it it's huge you know we 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 say before ichikoji nimoto sanskuri that is true but it sometimes takes away from the fact that everything is important in a sake brewery all of the stages right from the beginning and if you make a mistake on one of them say you make a mistake early and i've done that and i'll i'll explain what that was later then it has a, a knock-on effect further down the line and nowhere is that more severe than in the muro in when you're making koji so really the prep for koji making say kiku starts with washing and soaking the rice and um, why is it so important well like like we've said koji is a mold so what it what it does is it looks for moisture in fact that is why temperature control inside a muro is so important you have to get the moisture content right to the specification of koji that you're wanting otherwise it gives the the, the the spores a bad environment and they can run wild and do what they shouldn't be doing. You're trying to train them into the right place, which is to burrow into the center of that, that rice grain. So what they, what they do with rice washing and rice soaking and why it is so vital is they are trying to get to that ideal Gaiko Nainan. And what Gaiko Nainan means is hard on the outside, soft on the inside now there's another there's a number of reasons why they do that if it's soft on the outside and and moist you're leaving yourself open for contamination you're, you're going to have unwanted organisms they tend to um to, to obviously gravitate towards moisture as well so the outside being hard is a, is a big part of that and um, that protects the rice but also, once you take it into the to the muro, that's the the optimum condition to have koji mold growing on it as well, because what it will do is the mold when you're doing tani koji, that's like I said, that's inoculating the rice with the koji. You're trying to sprinkle it, and it all gets mixed. But with all the will in the world, it's looking for the nearest moisture source. If it finds it straight away on the surface of the rice, then it just starts growing. It doesn't grow into the rice it grows on the rice 
and obviously you know what you're trying to do is you know you're trying to turn starch into sugar and the various other things sometimes the fats as well but typically you want the the mold or the koji spores to burrow into the rice so gai ko nainan is the optimum condition for that because that that it burrows in and then it finds the moisture right in the rice where uh, which is exactly where they want it so to do the, the not just the washing and soaking but obviously the steaming is a big element of that as well because if you then mess up the steaming part of it you're not going to get gaiko in. so when you see you know when the toji checking the rice and what have you you know you'll see them rolling the rice typically on a bit of wood hineri uh, mochi that isn't for show that isn't something traditional or what have you what they're looking at in front of them is a big steaming batch of money you know the amount of money that's inside that rice cooker you think of these you know industrial scale rice cookers and then you think of the money that they've spent on the rice inside what they're doing is they can tell a good coat toji can tell the the texture of the rice whether it is is ready or not from that that little sample and if it's not it usually is then they'll steam it further and that's what they do that check just before they start bringing it all out and that really it obviously it has a you know that there's one mind on the mash as well whether it's going to um, dissolve properly in the mash but probably more so to, to the fact is is it now in the optimum uh, condition to bring it into the uh, into the muro and I have a sort of anecdote about my first uh, my first season sake brewing I was like most underlings they, they, they put you on to washing and soaking rice and it's not because it's menial or something like that typically it's because they want to show brewers how bad you can affect you know right down the line stages way down the line if you make a mistake and lo and behold I was I was washing and soaking rice with Yamaranishki the most expensive rice we used and I I, I cocked up I made a mistake and the, the rice didn't get enough moisture so when we steamed it the next, there's no easy fix for that, by the way, when we steamed it the next morning, and of course it was, it was destined for the muro, it was koji rice that I messed up. We brought it in and it produced terrible koji. So I was lucky that my, my toji at the time said, this is how we learn this. And this is why you're doing what you're doing in your first season. He said, now you've seen the impact that this has, because obviously the koji wasn't optimum which meant everything else, you know, right the way down to when we bottled it was not the way it should have been just because of a simple little mistake with, you know, which was soaking, specifically the soaking part of the rice, which then had a knock-on effect on the koji, which then had a knock-on effect on everything else, the moto, the moromi, you know, down to when we press it. So, so yeah, there is a huge amount of preparation that goes into the rice even before we get started on the actual process of making koji and yes we always talk about that it is the most important step but that doesn't mean that you can ignore the other steps they are also crucial and that's why you know every step is important in sake brewing yeah i guess every thread in the in the tapestry connects to every other thread so it, it all has to come together absolutely vital parts uh, to every step and uh i imagine that's a lesson that you will probably never ever ever forget <laughs> no i mean I, 
I, I still remember it really well because it's just the slightest, you know, drop in concentration. You're tired. It was at the end of the season. It's very high intense work when you're doing that kind of, um, you know, that kind of work where um i think they call it you know basically your 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 timing things down to you know within five seconds makes a big difference and if you just switch off for you know just a second when you're doing that and make the mistake and don't know you know forget which one is next to to be pulled out then what you're doing is you're either leaving it in too long you know, you get it's going to get too much moisture, uh, or it's not going to get enough. In my case, it didn't get enough moisture content. Now I think it was about twenty seconds early, but when you're dealing, we were making ginjo. When you're dealing with highly polished rice, that's one of the differences between brewers when they're using, um, you know, the difference between semi buai, the 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 rate that it absorbs water is drastically different. When you start getting down to the 50s and the 40s, even you know 60% is you know you're talking in minutes rather than hours when you're doing stuff like 70%, for example. But lo and behold, we were doing koji for dai ginjo, I think it was, and or it might have been ginjo with Yamada Nishiki. It had a really quick absorption rate, and I pulled pulled the rice out of the water about 20 seconds early. And that completely cocked up the koji the next morning. So, so yeah, that's the that's the joys of uh, of sake brewing. <laughs> funny, funny use of the word joy there. Now, I think we've we've talked quite a lot about the i the, the the sort of the job and then the the things that kikoji does when you're making sake. And uh, I did mention earlier two other varieties. Um, Awomori koji, which is uh, black koji or kuro koji, and shochu koji, which is white koji or shiro koji. Those also do sometimes show up in sake, and uh, they have some different impacts on the final product. And I know that Danny, you've got some experience working with uh, with white koji, and like, what was that like? Like. In terms of obviously, in, in terms of flavor, it was different. But what about in the muro and and in the mash and all of that? What, how did it act? Like, was it drastically different? Yeah, it and the the impact that it has on on sake. Actually, if if someone wants to know uh, in a very uh, I guess a very blunt way of seeing how different koji or or how big an impact koji can have, is try a sake that's made with a white koji or or, or a black koji compared to the conventional key koji and you'll see you'll you'll i can guarantee you, you will try drastically different beverages and that is you know that as i said that is in its most you know obvious form that you're actually talking about different types of mold that are that are used to make the the koji but but yeah i'm i only have experience with outside of yellow koji with using white koji and it's kind of a, a trend, I guess, in the industry right now. There's a lot of breweries that are starting to to use it. Some admittedly, I guess it's kind of trying to emulate wine. So mm-hmm. there's, there's, there is that element, which is probably not probably not the best thing that they're, they're the, the, if you use white koji, the biggest difference that you're going to notice 
is it produces a different type of acidity and it's a much more pronounced type of acidity as well. You often hear that tasting note that it's got a white wine quality. So that is the, that's what you're going to get if you use white koji. You're going to get much more pronounced acidity in the sake. And it does have, you know, like I said, a, a dramatic impact. It isn't easy for brewers to do for the very simple reason that if you're using different types of mold in the in the muro, you can't cross contaminate them. So if you use, for example, white koji, you typically have to do it last or first, preferably last, because if you're if you start using one koji kin and then all of a sudden you then switch to another one, they are going to cross pollinate there's no doubt about it and the next batch of sake is not going to turn out how you want and there, there could be some quite serious ramifications for that so from a logistics point of view it is quite tricky if you're lucky to have two muro which some breweries are then great you can have one muro that you know one room is you know you can use for white koji and one use for for yellow koji that is not a luxury that many brewers have got the reality is what you're going to have to do is decide when you're going to use it and you're going to have to completely clean out the muro every time you change the um the type or what some people do is they kind of use makeshift muro i've seen big boxes being used big wooden boxes that that have temperature controls and stuff like that it's almost like having a kind of portable koji making machine and that's one way of getting around it but yeah, it isn't uh, it isn't ideal. The actual myth, the method of making it is also very different. I'm not an expert on making uh, white koji. I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm not an expert on making yellow koji either. But what I can tell you is it's completely different pattern of temperature control. So when you're using uh, white, when you're making white koji, typically the, the koji gets brought into the, the muro at a very high temperature and then you kind of con you're, you're kind of controlling it in a, in a gradual you know decline rather than what what I said before with yellow koji is what you're doing is you're gradually raising the temperature you're doing it kind of the, the other way around so for the master brewer or the the person in charge of the, the kura unless they're very experienced with it it's a very nerve-wracking thing to do because this is behaving like i said these are living things think about them as two humans with two different you know personalities they behave in a different way and you have to learn you know basically how to you know all that that you know that intuition that you have and that relationship that you have with that koji you have to relearn that when you start using a, a different mold but like i said the, the results can be worth it because you're going to get two completely different products. Yeah. I, and I can say that like the, the sake I've had with, um, with white Koji, you know, you, you mentioned it's a different kind of acidity. It's, it's, it's actually, it's citric acid and yeah. it's really identifiable. Like not in every case, you know, you know, there are, are different sort of balances that go into the finished products and things, but a, a sake that really evokes that citric acidity, like it, it tastes citrusy, like it's, it's like, wow, you, there's a, like a shot of lemon juice in there. 
Kuen-san is what Kuen-san. we see in Japan. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, um, I've had some sake made with black koji as well. And I, I know a little bit about shochu and awamori. And like, I know that black koji is an extremely aggressive koji that uh, from what I understand, it, it just like it, it grows crazy. And uh, if you if you see any pictures of old uh, awamori distilleries in Okinawa, like they're, they're just black because the koji grows on everything it grows on people's clothes it grows on the walls it grows on the rocks so yeah it's it's a very aggressive koji so can i imagine that the sake brewers who who use that have an even worse time sort of keeping that from cross contaminating into the uh, into the the kikoji muro yeah well, and it is it is also consider, next, yeah sorry consider this then there is a sake called i don't know if you've heard of this it's kind of almost like an urban myth but it does exist there's a sake called Kaimira, which I can't remember where it's from, but it is a blend of all three. So it has koji that's made with white, yellow, and black. Wow. How they do that, <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine of the, 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 the trouble that they must have to go to to make that sake. I've never tried it. I have, I do know a colleague who, who uh, managed to pick up a bottle in the UK of all places and uh, said it was absolutely uh, fantastic, if not bizarre. But there you go. There, there are sake that exists that, that have all three. There you go. So we come, as always, now to the, the end of our talk, and it's time to recommend a sake. And this is another one of those topics where it's just like, it's all sake. <laughs> Right. All sake, all sake is, is dependent utterly on koji and every sake that you drink is going to be an expression of koji. And so, you know, whenever you drink a sake, just think, mm, yeah, I love that protier's work. But must needs, we do want to recommend a sake. So, Andy, what's your recommendation? So my recommendation is from Shimane from a brewery called Itakura Shuzo. I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard. Uh, they are makers of Tenon, and this is their kind of premium line called Mukyu Tenon. It's a Kimoto Ginjo. Now, I actually wrote a blog about this. It's in the archives on my website if anyone wants to read more details, because I won't go into it all tonight. But it is an absolutely fantastic sake. It's made in the traditional San-in Ginjo style. So we talked before about the difference between terroir and regionality. This is regionality. So this is a this is a style that, that the brewers have chosen to make and it's specific to the Sanin region. Now and it's and that is that's why it's called Sanin Ginjo. Sanin is the, the region up in the, the I guess the, the northwest of Japan on the Sea of Japan coast. Mukyu Tenon, why is it so or why is it appropriate for a conversation about koji? Well, the koji is really the big thing with this sake. They they, they made it in a, a particular way that they let the koji really kind of stretch out that enzymatic phase. So that's after the shimai shigoto phase. Typically, koji takes about 48 hours to make. This uh, allegedly took three days to make. So and the, the, the extra time was on that, that period where it's producing enzymes. Now, that might sound very simple just to leave the koji for an extra day and you're going to get more 
enzymes, but it's not. It's actually highly risky. It takes a lot of skill to make sure the koji doesn't actually go way too far. But the reason they did that, the reason they wanted that more um, enzymatic activity, and it was skihaze koji that they used, is they also, later down the line, they wanted to really draw out the fermentation. Now, that is also extremely difficult to do, and it, it requires very good, uh, very well-made, specifically produced koji to do that. Because if you're making, specifically, skihaze is the way to do that, because the, the, the enzymes are very healthy, but they're not in such an abundance that it's going to, you know, it's going to cause a very vigorous fermentation it's going to be just the right amount and they're going to be nice and healthy and what they did is they fermented that for about 35 to 40 days and it produces an extraordinary expression of ginjo which is not really orthodox um, but but very very interesting and all i would say is if you come to japan i'm not sure if they export it but you'll see that they have very distinctive very um elegant labels and uh, and yeah, that that is, if you try that sake and you see the difference between that and, and orthodox ginjo, um, that has been, that is the, the, the result of a specific type of koji. So it's a very good exercise um, and very appropriate for our talk tonight. Ah, that sounds fantastic. I, I'll have to track it down. Now, as for my recommendation, I have to apologize. I, I can't remember the brewery. Um, I, I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details, but it's this sake called Five Yellow, and it is made with uh, uh, the name maybe a little bit confusing, uh, with with white koji, shiro koji, and it, it's an excellent expression of uh, of that sort of very pronounced but not overbearing citric acid nature, right? Um, I also have. I have a sneaking suspicion. I, I can't, like I said, you know, the details are a little bit fuzzy. I believe it's a, a, a Kiyoke Kimoto. Um, I, the, the, this brewery, it's, 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 it's on the tip of my tongue. I, I don't really remember what it was, but, but they do have Kiyoke, uh, five or six of them in, in a small room and, and all of their, their Kimoto is made in that uh, Kiyoke. But yes, it's, it's this really, really clear expression of how that white koji creates a difference from this the, the typical uh, uh sake that they make at this uh brewery that shall remain unnamed i'm i'm stunned that it's not gokyo it's gokyo you told me you told me that i couldn't recommend any more gokyo uh, you know my my you know, my internal alarm was going off there. Jim, does, <laughs> you know, I'm sure our listeners know Jim does not forget breweries. Um, he, he does not, you know, do these things on a whim. So, yeah, the whole way through that, I'd just like to point out that I was thinking he's talking about Gokyo. He has to be. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a pass. You know, if you hadn't said Gokyo, I would have been shocked. So, <laughs> right. There's yet another Gokyo reference on Saki Deep Dive. Sorry about that, but but it's just so perfect, right? Like it's you know it's it's right there. It's this really really great expression of of a of a Junmai sake that that brings together um, the, the 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 richness that you would expect from Gokyo with that really bright, fresh, vibrant acidity that that comes. Fantastic. 
Thank you very much. Right. So, Andy, uh, what's our takeaway for today? Our takeaway today is, I guess, really the like what we've been saying all along. Koji is really the the, the heart of sake brewing. Yes, water is important. Yes, rice is important. Yes, the yeast is important. Yes, the production method is important. But without good koji, you aren't going to make good sake. And the koji influences all of those elements that we've talked about. All of the other raw ingredients come from it. So we cannot, you know, we cannot state this strongly enough. If you want to to really begin to to understand sake, you you do have to get the nitty gritty and you know and start to look into to koji. It is that important, and it's also fascinating. It really opens up the door and starts to explain things and other things that you've heard maybe in less detail start to make more sense. Obviously, it's not a simple discussion. Uh, and we've probably not even done it justice tonight. Um, but, you know, if the takeaway is just this, hopefully that, you know, this this episode will give people points to to go off and do their, their own study um, and maybe, you know, dive off down different rabbit holes. Um, so, so, yeah, that's it. You know, Koji is definitely worth studying and it should be top of everyone's priority that's, that's serious about, um, you know, trying to un uncover some of the mysteries of this uh, fantastic beverage absolutely couldn't have said it better myself thank you once again andy for sharing your expertise with us tonight that was a, a fun talk uh thank you everyone out there for listening uh that has been yet another episode of sake deep dive the sake podcast for the beyond beginner uh, i am jim ryan sake writer and translator you can find me online at Twitter uh, under the username at Jim underscore D underscore Ryan. That's R-I-O-N. Andy, how about yourself? You can find me on my website, www.originsake.com. Uh, although for the next six months, no one's going to find me because I'm going to be inside a brewery, uh, you know, usually from about five o'clock uh, in the morning. So so apologies if my messaging starts to um, starts to you know replies start to become a bit slower, um, but that that is why. Ah, the brewer's life, but uh, good luck in there, and uh, I hope you all have a wonderful autumn. You're staying warm. You're drinking responsibly. Stay safe out there, and uh, come by. Come by.